Discipline is nothing more than self-love. All discipline is at its base level is a form of self-love. If you can shift that perspective from like discipline is punitive, but self-love is reward-based. Because if you really, if you make a decision to not, like you said, like talking about losing weight, if, you, if you're losing weight and you want to eat a piece of cake, but you know it's going to mess you up. Like if you make that, if you, if you can say like, oh, I'm disciplined and I'm, I'm withholding joy from myself, that's, one, that's not sustainable. But if you say, you know what, I'm, I'm choosing not to eat that cake because I love myself, that's reward. That feels good. That's, that's sustainable. Hey there, and welcome back to the show. Uh, this is your host, Brett Hawes, and you are listening to Holistic Health Masterclass Podcast. Um, my guest today is Sam Morris, and uh, Sam has a very interesting and colorful background. Um, he's also the founder of uh, the Unbreakable Man Project, and uh, that's really the focal point of our discussion today. You know, as we uh, venture further into this pandemic and uh, we see what's going on around us, I think one thing that keeps popping up is mental health. And um, in this conversation, we everything that we're talking about is really revolving around mental health, but with a specific focus on men and with also a specific focus on addiction. Okay, so Sam, uh, that is his background. You'll hear that in the whole conversation, um, you know, uh, from tennis star to rock star uh, to addiction to rock bottom and then back again. And uh, Sam's now on a mission to bring men together and uh, to help them. Uh, with addiction and with mental health. So uh, I think it's a great conversation. I really enjoyed sitting down with Sam. And um, I think that, again, this is becoming a very big focal point here with mental health issues on the rise, suicides on the rise, alcoholism, depression, isolation. Uh, These things are all uh, fallouts of the pandemic and, of course, consequences of lockdowns, financial ruins, loss of livelihoods, businesses, and so on. So I think this is a great conversation, not necessarily just for men. I think everyone will get some value out of this conversation. But if you have loved ones, um, you know, partners, brothers, um, husbands, grandfathers, whoever, uh, who are maybe suffering from some of these issues, um, you might want to share this podcast with them. And, of course, also uh, connect with Sam on his website and check out some of the stuff that he's doing. Um, So yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. I don't really have any other major announcements. Um, uh, Once again, uh, thank you for tuning in. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing, uh, leaving us a review, subscribing to the podcast, and uh, helping me get more awesome guests on here uh, like Sam. So thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the show, and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. Right. Hey, Sam, welcome to Holistic Health Masterclass podcast. Great to be here, Brett. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's awesome. And, you know, one of the uh, subjects that I've really been focused on, this is actually the, the first episode of season four, by the way. Awesome. Um, so uh, it's Glad actually quite, it it's quite serendipitous that you're on the show. Because uh, one of the themes um, that I'm really driving home as we kind of get further into the pandemic and stuff that's going on in the world is resiliency. 
and we know that um, you know a lot of a lot of what's happening on the resiliency side of things is people are just being worn down, right? We're being worn down, we're being ground down, and of course, as we're going to talk about today, uh, one of the consequences of that is people with addictive tendencies, with self sabotaging behaviors. Uh, those things tend to resurface. And that's why we're starting to see now people dying of drug overdoses, um, alcoholism, uh, disruption of family units, et cetera, et cetera. So um, yeah, welcome. And uh, you know, I, I guess let's just uh, start off with your background because you have a pretty crazy story and <laughs> how you came to be here. And, and also tell us a little bit about your, um, you know, I, I guess segue into your organization and, and a little bit about what that does as well. Yeah, uh, sure. Um, so my journey started in Vermont um, and growing up in Vermont, like, you know, f- by all accounts and from an outsider's perspective and for me for a long time, I was like, you know, I had this amazing childhood skiing all winter, playing tennis and golf all summer. Um, not a lot really like no abuse or anything terrible like that. And the reason I say that now is because <clears throat> there's a lot of people that suffer from addiction, which I did later in life that have a lot of stuff like that external Mm -hmm. stuff going on in childhood but my childhood was full of illness so i was i had really really severe asthma um a long list of food allergies i mean anything from strawberries to pork to peanuts to legumes um, coconuts um just a, a ton of stuff eggs and so um you know i was basically from a very young age i was really scared of the world you know, every spring, like I would end up in the hospital for probably, probably every year for the first 13 to 15 years of my life, probably three or four weeks a year, I was in the hospital. Wow. Either, either like a, yeah, either like a, a peanut, eating a peanut, having allergic reaction, anaphylaxis, or more commonly, it was asthma attacks. You know, like in the winter, I would get an asthma attack in the middle of the night when it's super cold and dry. In the spring, the pollen would come in, you know, from being in Canada, like this, that there's yellow clouds of pollen that just yeah. float across the sky. You know, for me, that's like, I look at that and I'm like, oh gosh, like this is going to be death. And so I, uh, I had this childhood that, you know, as a child, I didn't really have a frame of reference. It was just, this is the way it was for me. I had to be really conscious of my breath. I had to be really conscious of what I ate. I had to be really mindful of, you know, keeping an inhaler on me. And so, um, you know, I didn't have that frame of reference. Now going on later in life, uh, one thing that I did recognize as a kid was that I really, really hated social situa- social situations mm. like birthday parties. Um, you know, in Vermont, there's a lot of like farm stuff, like ha- horse rides and and stuff like that. And it would always be a very, very traumatic experience for me because of one is that built-in fear. Like, what if I get an asthma attack and my mom's not there to rush me to the hospital? What if I eat a peanut and you know I don't have an EpiPen nearby? Or you know, a lot of times with for me, um, the breathing, like other kids would make fun of me for the way I was breathing. Hmm. And so I had these, this evidence that the world is a scary place and I'm better off just staying at home. So I would avoid social situations a lot. And looking back, this was the precursors to severe social anxiety. And so, um, when I was about seven or eight years old, I, um, I was at the, uh, we belonged to a country club in Vermont and I, I was a golfer, loved playing golf, but one day I picked up a tennis racket and it just it turns out that like it felt good in my hand and i was i was i had really good eye hand coordination i was fast so i was really i just picked up tennis like it was you know second nature for me so i made a decision pretty quickly that like my life was gonna be based around tennis and now 
tennis for me meant that um, it, it, it was something that I loved to do. I was really good at it. I started getting accolades right away, winning tournaments and getting trophies and my name's on the wall at the country club and all this stuff that was that felt really good as a, as a kid that had been kind of fearful of a lot of things. It was a really nice little outlet for me. Mm-hmm. And it provided me also as a built-in excuse to not go to social events because tennis, so in New England, um, I would spend most of my weekends playing tennis tournaments around like Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, Rhode Island, Connecticut, all those places. And so I had a reason not to go to these parties now. And this was like heaven for me because I didn't have to like call up and say, I don't want to go to this party anymore. So tennis, tennis played a lot of roles for me. It was my first love and it was also my first savior. Like it, it saved me from having to deal with that, those social situations that I really, really hated. Now, um, so tennis was my, I committed to tennis. And so basically tennis took me all through college, um, through high school. I was ranked number one in the state of Vermont. I went to a boarding school in Florida for a year before college, got recruited to play tennis at, at a college in North Carolina. And, um, you know, everything was, everything was pretty good. I found, I, I kind of found my groove with everything. And then, um, after college, I stopped playing tennis and again, like it's really easy to talk in hindsight, but at the time I didn't recognize it, but my identity had been stripped away. You know, tennis how, was how, my... How, how so? How, how do you feel? And, and also, I guess I have a second question there. Like, what made you stop playing tennis suddenly? Um, so, the, the tennis thing was... The, what, stopped, what made me stop playing tennis was that after college, like, I had had designs on being a professional tennis player pretty much until the end of college, my senior year of college. And I, a couple things happened. Is One is, when I was a freshman... Um, I blew my knee out playing basketball. And so I got, that was the first time in 20 years that I hadn't, not 20, 15 years that I hadn't been playing tennis basically every day. Hmm. And so I figured out that it was kind of like, like the social anxiety wasn't really a thing anymore. And like I was at college, so we were, you know, drinking. And I realized that drinking kind of like puts all that, all those voices to bed with the anxiety. And so I kind of had this taste of, you know, maybe there's something else besides tennis. Maybe, maybe I'm, you know, I, I like this socializing. I like, I like making friends. I like going to play golf with my buddies. I like going to football games. Like there are all these things that kind of cropped up now to say that at this point, like I was after that knee injury, I was still dead set on getting back to playing on a tennis team, getting back to be a professional tennis player, but a seed had been planted that, you know what, like tennis is a major commitment to be a professional tennis player. There's no off season. You're playing all year round. Like even right now, they're playing the final eight of the whole AP, ATP tour is playing in London and they're going to play all through the, like up till January and then the Australian open starts. So um, my senior year, my senior year, I was on the tennis team and my coach, I was, I was, I was struggling with tennis. Yeah. You know, I, I was pretty much, I, I was burnt out. You know, I'd been playing, I was 23 at this point. I'd been playing every day since I was seven. And I just, I, I had kind of lost interest in playing on, on the tennis team at college. So my coach was like, you know, I'm not going to take your scholarship away, but I think that your, your run on the tennis team here is done. He's, and he's told me I was burnt out and I didn't have much of an argument. I was yeah. like, you know, I, I'm kind of done. And so that was kind of, that was the end of my tennis career. And um, again, like, it wasn't like I, I, I was, I wasn't upset by it. Um, I, I thought it was the end of my college tennis career. I was planning on playing some tournaments after college and seeing how that goes. But then it occurred to me, this was in the fall. So it occurred to me over the year that this level of commitment that I needed to be a professional tennis player, I didn't have that in me. I didn't have the desire to give up my friends and give up like all this life that I you know, was experiencing to go play tennis. So I, I, I basically, I let it fall away. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, again, I didn't realize at the time, but like, you know, my, 
like that tennis filled a, uh, it was a huge part of my life, you know, like it was, it, it for one, it, it, it helped with the social anxiety. It gave me confidence. It gave me accolades. It gave me, gave me, it was my identity. Like I was a tennis player. Like in college, people knew me as the guy on the tennis team and go back to my hometown in Vermont. People still, if you bring up my name, they're going to be like, Oh, you're a tennis player. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's this, uh, I have this attachment to it. And now, so when the tennis went away, I was kind of lost. You know, I didn't, I didn't spend much time in college studying. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I was more focused on the tennis and eventually the partying and the girls the senior year. And so I didn't really have, I had a sports management major, but again, like I didn't have much to fall back on. Um, yeah. Yeah. so I got, I got a job at a bank in North Carolina and Charlotte and you know, the, and this is when the drinking picked up and I was living with, it was me and uh, four other buddies of mine in this big house in, in North Carolina, right downtown. So we would drink Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. You know, early 20s, you can recover pretty quickly. There was no real consequences, but this was the first sign of, you know, some problems coming. Like I was, ever, to say, like, I could say, like, I was doing what everyone else was doing, but I was also the only one doing it to the extent that I was doing it. Do you feel like at that time, did you, kind of, were some flags kind of going off even when you were young? Or, because look, I, I've also had my own issues with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I won't get into all of it because I have spoken about it on the show before, but I didn't really know about it at all. Like when I was younger, you're just like, oh, well, this is just how everyone is, right? This is what's right. going on around you. Yeah. I grew up in the music scene. Uh, mm. I have a music production background. I DJed all over the world. Party, 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 right? So it's yeah. like, well, this is just what everyone does. And it, it kind of took me much, till, like much later in life, um, post-trauma, post-whatever, to kind of realize like, okay, well, hang on a second. Like, this is not how everyone else behaves. <laughs> But yeah, so, you know, as a young guy in your 20s, like, did you kind of um, get any flags there or no? If I look back now, yes. At the time, no. It was just like yeah. you said. Like, it was like I was just in, in that, that was my lane and that's what I was doing. Now, if I look back, I can say like, the, I, got, I, drunk, I got drunk twice in high school. And then in college, a couple of times I had some experiences where I was like, you know, nothing bad happened. No DUIs. I didn't like, no, no real harm, no jail, nothing like that. But it didn't sit well with me how, how it all went down. And I just chalked it up as like, oh, that's just like every now and then you get a bad night when you drink. Like yeah. that's what it was, yeah. Yeah. you know? And so um, there were definite red flags though. Um, I mean, as far back as 16, 17. Right. Um, so do, do, an, another question for you, do, do you feel, you know, I think identity, you bring that up. It, it's such an important um, aspect of all of this, right? Because I think when people talk about identity and loss of identity, it's mm-hmm. a loss of self, like a sense of self. Mm-hmm. And, and then there needs to be something to fill that void. Yep. But I'm sure we'll touch on this a, a little bit later on. I think there's equal, the equal identity is also for people that are, um, that are on the addiction cycle that do have substance abuse issues. That's also your identity, right? Yeah. And so, you know, for me, I used to smoke a lot of pot when I was younger. And I remember when I stopped smoking pot, you know, like, like now, you know, whatever, I'll, I'll dabble here and there and, and whatnot, but it's not my thing anymore at all. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I just remember when I stopped smoking, all of a sudden, like all the people around me, like my relationships changed, everything changed around me. And it was like, who am I all of a sudden, right? Like mm-hmm. everyone, everyone knows you as part of the circle. Like you're just going to go and smoke a couple bongs or you're going to yeah. smoke a couple joints and have some beers. And all of a sudden when you don't do that anymore, like your identity is just gone, you know? Um, so yeah. do you feel like that's, that's a, that's a pretty prominent theme, um, whether it's pre pre addiction or post addiction? 
Yeah, absolutely. Because like identity, it's, uh, you know, identity, identify, like you identify with a certain thing, you identify with a certain group of people, and that becomes, you know, you fit in there, and it feels good to fit in, and people want to fit in. Um, there was a huge disconnect for me, even with the drinking, you know, like I would, I felt, I felt, I remember there was one time I was in North Carolina, and I walked into a bar, and, and I, my first thought was like, I'm not this cool. Like these people all were excited to see me, and I was thinking, why? Like, cause, cause I still had, honestly, like my part of my identity was like that socially anxious, sick little kid that got picked on. And so like, I didn't, and I drank over all this. I, I drank, I, first of all, it was tennis, you know, covering that up, which is fine and healthy and good. And it yeah. provided me a lot of things, but for then after tennis left, I started like, you know, th that stuff crept back in that social anxiety and like that, all that stuff crept in and it was like, okay, so I love going out, but. I can't do it sober. What am I, I love going on dates, but I can't do that sober. I love going to concerts, but I can't do that sober. Like, how am I going to continue to live a life that I love without, and this is like the conversation that I had later on, but like without drinking, like at first drinking was like, I didn't think anything of it. Didn't connect any of the dots. It was just like you said, like I was doing what everyone else was doing. This is what we did. Mm -hmm. Everyone in the house, we all had a good time. Um, my identity shifted from tennis to rock star. You know, like yeah. it became, it became like, if you wanted to have a good time, call Sam. And honestly, I had no problem with that. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, it's a lot of fun, right? At the time, yeah. it's a lot of fun. But I feel like, um, you know, as we're chatting here, I feel like what happens in those situations is you kind of paint yourself into a corner, right? You know, eventually you just like, you're, you're, you're known as that guy and you kind of can't step out of that role at all. And then you're sort of like, well, if I can't, you know, everything starts to revolve around whatever the substance is. Right. And, you know, you, you see that play out in society so often it's like, well, we can't do something unless we have a drink, right? So, you know, you can go play yeah. around a golf, but you're going to throw a six pack in your bag because we're not <laughs> also going to have drinks while we play golf. And then right. you know, we're going to go watch fireworks, but we're also going to have a drink. And I think that when you kind of peel away from that, it's kind of terrifying for a lot of people because, you know, again, as you said, your social circles change, your, you know, how am I going to do it without the yeah. thing, you know, which right. is kind of, kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, because you don't know who you are. Yeah. You're like you're so wrapped up in that. I remember one time I went out to a bar and this like there would be nights when I wouldn't drink. Like I was one of those bingers. You know, like if I I could go weeks without it and be fine, but if I got it in me, all bets were off. I was going for three or four or five days. Yeah. And I went out one night and I remember like showing up at the bar and everyone's like, Hey Sam, like like psyched to see me because we're gonna go dancing and do all the things and like, What are you drinking tonight? I'm like, Oh, I'm not drinking tonight. And they were disappointed. Yeah. They were yeah. like, Oh, we're we're not gonna get the version of Sam that we love is what I interpreted that as. Well, so, I, yeah, uh, I think what also happens though is, is you, you, start, um, you start bringing up uh, reflections in other people, right? Because yeah. other people start looking at you and going, oh, geez, like now do I drink too much? And they start yeah. thinking about themselves, right? Absolutely. And like, okay, hang on a second. And then you start, they start questioning who they are and, and their behavior, which can yeah. make people pretty squirrely, you know? Pretty uncomfortable. If you're not ready to look in the mirror and you have to yeah. look in the mirror, it's not yeah. very comfortable. <laughs> So, so, so things, um, you know, obviously I've, I've read up on you, um, listened to some of your, your stuff out there. Things got pretty bad for you, right? Uh, I mean, yeah. you, you really spiraled downhill um, before you kind of sorted yourself out. So. Yeah, there was a couple markers. I mean, so 23 to like 30 was like kind of that hard charging, hard party or no real consequences, but also I was always the guy that was more fucked up than everybody else. Like yeah, that, yeah. that was kind of there. But, you know, I, I got married in that span. I got married and divorced. I, I, I was able to hold down jobs. Like, you know, again, no jail, no hospitals. Like, no real, 
no real consequences except that there were some there were some tough conversations because I would behave like a drunk. Sure. And then um, I got divorced at 29, and at age 30, I moved down to Miami from Fort Lauderdale. And this was the first time. So this was the first time um, in probably like 10 years that I didn't have a, a like a governor on my life. So for the longest time through college, basically, I had tennis. And then for a couple of years, senior year of college, and a couple of years after, I didn't really have tennis, but I had a job, and I was trying to trying to maintain a, a, a job and all that. And then um, I got married, so I had that in my life. And then at age 30, I was divorced single living in Miami doing commercial real estate. And it was like all bets were off. I mean, it was like, you know, they say with, with addiction, it's a, it's a steady decline. And then eventually you hit the cliff and it's, it's, it's a sharp drop. So from age 30 to 33 was my sharp drop. Okay. And it was just, it turned into like, I mean the, you know, like they, uh, the cocaine was a lot, a lot of cocaine, just pretty much every week. Every time I drank, I was doing cocaine. Um, you know, the, it started to show up as like, man, maybe not making it to work on Friday, probably not making it to work on Monday because Sunday fun day, like the, yeah. it's the, the party started to bleed and ripple into the rest of my life. And so I started to feel this, the repercussions of all this. Mm. And so at age 33 is when the, all the consequences, like I had consequences in between 30 and 33, my girl, uh, troubled relationship with my girlfriend. My family started asking questions. My friends were kind of like, dude, what's going on with you? Like those questions that come that you're like, ah, oh, I got it. And then you stop for 30 days and everyone's like, Oh, you're fine. Like, cool. Good for you. Yeah. yeah. And so um, at 33, um, so I turned 33 in December. And then in March of that following year, I got my, fir- not my first DUI. It's actually my third DUI, but the first one that um, I went to jail for. And so I ended up, I ended up getting in an accident. It was like 10 in the morning in Coral Gables in, in Miami. And um, yeah, I just, I T-boned another car going through an intersection. I hadn't had any sleep. I'd been up all night drinking. And I was just looking away from the road and T-boned the car. And so that was, that was, that triggered my first trip to rehab. And I went to this rehab thinking like, you know what? Like I kind of recognized that there's something going on here. Like this is not a good stretch. Like there's, you know, the job is suffering. Um, I just wrecked a car. My girlfriend's asking all these questions. We had broken up for a little while. My family's like, what are you doing? And so I kind of like, you know, it was one of those things where like, I'm going to go away and give everybody else a time out. Because mm-hmm. you guys need to check yourself. Because yeah. you know, I'm I'm fine, but I'm going to go away to to just get some rest and regroup, and I'll I'll come back and I'll be fine. And I mean, at at, at that point as well, um, not to put words in your mouth, but I'm going to venture out and take a guess. You you probably thought that if you just took a break and then came back, that you could just get control over it, right? And you could just keep on going, and you know, well, I'll I'll just cut back a bit here and there, and maybe I'll only do it on Fridays and Saturdays, because that's like the pattern as well, right? Is is um, p- people start thinking, you know, I call it dancing with the devil, yeah, um, where 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 you're just like, okay, well, look, I was doing it five days a week, but if I just do it once or twice a week, and I don't get too out of control, and people don't notice, well, that's probably okay, you know, that, that that's fine now. Um, did you kind of experience anything like that? Uh, yeah, I pretty much have nothing else to add. <laughs> That's right. exactly how it happened. Like, you know, I was like, you know what? I'll just, I'll just stop at, you know, instead of having 15 drinks, I'll stop at five. Yeah. You know, I'll still, I'll still be able to have fun and have a good time, but I won't get to the point where I'm missing for four days over on South beach doing whatever. So, so what, so what for you was like the big kind of breaking point where you just said, okay, cool. Enough's enough. I got to just like turn my life around. I got to do something else. And then, yeah. So what, what was that? Like, when was that point? What happened? So from age 33 to 30, 38 is when that happened is actually, you know what? Um, eight years ago tomorrow. 
Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So uh, I was 38 years old, but between 33 and 38, so I went to that rehab. I went to rehab again that year in the fall of that year. Um, I went to rehab again in 2010, and then um, I did a bunch of outpatients in like 2011. And then 2012 um, is when I was 4 a.m., on November 21st, 2012. And I was sitting at my, and in that time, the 33 to 38, I got cancer in my mouth twice. I fell off a balcony, 35 feet, walked out of the hospital, wow. multiple hospital stays. Probably, I, I think I, I lost track of how many times I got arrested for drunken publics or, you know, like just overnight stays in jail, but it was a Crazy. lot. Yeah. yeah. And so this is all compressed into five years. So at th- I was sitting there at my kitchen table by myself, looking at a pile of drugs, bottle of rum, and, you know, it, I just, at a moment, for, for a moment, like all that stuff that happened from basically from 23 to 38, because at this point I was hyper aware of the pain I had caused other people, sure, yeah. the pain yeah. I had caused myself. Like I was very aware. I had, I had had a year of sobriety before this last bender. And so I was just like, you know, I just, it all came rushing to me. It all came rushing and like was staring in front of my dad's face was in front of me. My mom's face was in front of me. My sister's crying was in front of me. Like all the, my, my physical and emotional pain was in front of me. All of it was right there. And I just said to myself, I, I was like, I don't know anything about what's going to happen, but I know that I, I can't face tomorrow and I can't go on like this. And yeah. so I just, that was it. That so was full, the Yeah. Break, break down to break through. Right. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. Yeah. Just, so, um, so, so from there, you know, obviously you've, you've done, I mean, obviously you've done a lot of work on yourself. You're helping um, other people to do the same. Yep. So maybe let's just uh, kind of move a little bit forward into your project right now. Um, uh, you know, maybe share a little bit about uh, what, mm-hmm. what your mission is and your project yeah. and how you help men. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the name of my company is the Unbreakable Human Collective. So, um, you know, we as a human race are a collective, but it's very important that we take care of ourselves to, to better the collective. So um, I started my, you know, kind of like a coaching career as a personal trainer in 2014, did that for four years. And I moved into um, kind of helping just general like life coaching kind of stuff, like just whatever's going on. And then I, I, I shifted that into my sister passed away in uh, 2018 from alcoholism. Hmm. And so I, yeah. I shifted into like, you know, she was a silent sufferer. I was not a silent sufferer. Like it was, basically blasted over the over the tv like it was loud in everyone's face i was falling off balconies i was getting duis there was no hiding it but i recognize that like there's a ton of guys out there that suffer in silence and so i i shifted my focus of my coaching to helping guys um not so much get sober but like when they're first sober the first 30 60 90 Mm -hmm. days Mm -hmm. when they basically have to learn how to live again because that was my big thing was like i could stop but staying stopped was always the problem because i didn't know how to live without it so if, I, if you can handle, I, I learned that if I can handle, from my experience, I was able to handle the things that fueled my drinking. So if I could help these guys overcome these things that fueled their drinking, I could keep, they, you know, I, I couldn't keep them, but I could help them not drink again and, and be better husbands, better brothers, better fathers, better sons, all the things. Yeah. And so from there, um, I, it became very apparent to me that every single guy that I was helping suffered with some sort of anxiety or depression. So, so, so yeah, so, so perhaps like is, I mean, is, is that like one of the sort of common themes or common threads that you see with all of the guys that you work with? 
I would say, are there more? I mean, are there, are there others that you want to share? Uh, well, so the so what what I do now is a little less around the mental health, but it's more around the silent stories that we tell ourselves, the things that get in our way, the things that block us. So the, the analogy that I use a lot is, you know, like. I work with a lot of guys, CEOs or athletes, actors, those kind of people that have reached a certain level of success in their life, the mountaintop, so to speak. But they get to the mountaintop and, you know, they, they see on the top of the mountain is this beautiful pasture with maybe a beach and a lake and palm trees and whatever else is up there. That they, all the things they want in life, right? all the things they've worked for up to this point. But they get to that end of that path and there's a glass wall in front of them. And they can't see the glass wall, but they can see what's on the other side of it, all this, this life they want. But they can't see what the, they can't see why they can't get to the gla- to the pasture from the path because they keep bumping into this glass wall. So yeah, mental health is de- mental illness is definitely a huge block. Anxiety is a huge block. Fear, overwhelm, um, perspective. Honestly, perspective is a very uh, you know um, not talked about arm of mental health. You know, people's perspective is very very skewed to it's based on past pain. Like everyone's perspective of their current reality is based on past pain. Yeah. Yeah, future, future fear is based on past pain. And so what I do now is that I get these guys, like we d- establish what the glass wall is. And so by removing that glass wall, I'm removing the things that are blocking you. Like, you know, a lot of people don't understand that, Like if you have a, if you're 45, say, and you have this, you know, fear of fear of public speaking, maybe public speaking is the thing that's going to get you what you want in life. And this is an example, but but you have a fear of it and you don't know why because you've never done public speaking before in your life. So why would you be afraid of it? And it's like, it's, it's a public speaking thing, but really what it is is that somewhere back in your childhood, maybe like at a basketball game, you, you missed the last shot and your team lost and your coach was like, Oh, you, you know, you, you suck. You missed the last shot. Yeah. yeah. But now you think that like you translate that past pain into this block that you have now in your, in your present. And so what I do is I, you know, if it's, if it's anxiety, if it's social anxiety, if it's depression, like these things are choices, they, they're, they're afflictions and they're mental illnesses, but eventually they, they are choices and you're choosing it. So if, and, take, and they take up all your bandwidth, all your energy, yeah, totally so clear away all that stuff. And that glass wall just melts away. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's uh, interesting, obviously, as someone who's, who's been in the alternative health space for almost 20 years, um, I deal a lot with mindset, I deal a lot with the spiritual side of things mm-hmm. and, and all of that. So um, I think you're like pretty bang on with the way you're the, the, the view of all of that. And perhaps I'm just going to add a couple of things where, yeah, you know, a please. good analogy for people to kind of wrap their head around. I always say that a lot of times the, the way that we're acting as adults is actually rooted in childhood, right? Mm. So if you just think about your programming, like your, your, um, <laughs> your programming and your conditioning by your parents, by your teachers, by authority figures, um, by your friends, you know, uh, a, good, a good one that I always use for uh, my clients in, in clinic is, you know, I say to them, if you were five years old and you walked out into the backyard with your mother and you saw a snake in the backyard, right? Well, your mother's, you know, there's a couple of ways that she could respond. She could go, oh my God, it's a snake. Snakes are terrible. They're poisonous. They can kill you. Like get away from it. And from that point on, that's how you're going to respond every time you see a snake. So at age 45, you could just see a grass snake outside in your backyard. That's literally 10 inches long and freak out. 
Okay. But the opposite is also true. Like, you know, your mother could have said to you, well, look, here's a snake. You know, we have to be a little bit cautious. Some snakes can be poisonous, but check out the cool scales. You know, wow, there's all different color snakes. So you have an, you have a, an appreciation for the snake. You have um, a healthy fear, if you will, of the snake and it's more cautious, but that's how you're going to respond. If you take that line of thinking and you map it onto pretty much anything else, it's, that is how we are as human beings. And I think the challenge that everyone has is how do you deprogram yourself, mm. right? How do, we, how do we say to ourselves consciously and bring up that stuff from the subconscious into the conscious mind to say, man, you know what? Like, like for me, I have an inherent fear of dogs, right? <laughs> okay, that's my thing. Like, and I got attacked by a dog when I was like six years old. Um, it wasn't like, it was brutal, but it wasn't like really bad. I don't have, you know, tons of stitches and whatever, but it terrified me, like it traumatized yeah. me. And now it's like, I'm so conscious of that. I know it, but every time a dog comes close to me, I just, I can feel it like inside of me. I'm like ready to kick it in the head, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, as much as we're talking about fairly benign examples here, I think when you map that onto things like social anxiety on um, perhaps, you know, low self-esteem, mm -hmm. not feeling good enough, um, you know, isolation. I mean, I want to talk about isolation because okay. I, I really, I, that's a huge topic with addiction, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, I think that, um, you know, you have some tools in your toolkit. Maybe we'll talk about that uh, in, okay. in a little bit as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, how do you like, how, how do you get people to like reprogram themselves? <laughs> you know, how, how do they break through that glass uh, wall as you put yeah, it? Yeah. So, so the glass wall is basically an event, right? Like it's an anxiety event, a depressive episode, a, a rejection, something, mm -hmm. some kind of fear just overtook them and they, you know, got paralyzed. Like some, some sort of event that by the time you get to that event, it's too late. Like yeah. you're, it's not, it's, I mean, you can recover, but you're, once you get to that event and you're experiencing that event, you basically have to experience the event as it is until it passes. Mm. But you don't have to get to the event is what I work with all these right, guys. Okay. It doesn't have to go down that road that far. Like you don't have to get into an anxiety attack to understand that you have anxiety. And so what I do is I reverse engineer these events, all of these events, all these blocks, these blocks or events, the interchangeable. These are these things that stand in your way, reverse engineer them all the way back to, like you said, the snake at six yeah, years old, yeah, like yeah. reverse engineer it to the point where like, we understand that that's a story that a six year old kid made up. It's basically a misunderstanding that you had as a six-year-old because you didn't have a frame of reference and you didn't have any other data and you decided this is how it's going to be forever. Mm -hmm. and now look at your reality and look at, look at like, let's look at the patterns that are in between those two events. Like, you know, getting fired from a job and, and get, having a girl break up with you are the same event. You're, you're, you're getting rejected both times. Just different clothing. <laughs> different clothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just wolf. Yeah. She was a sheep in different clothing. Sheep and yeah, wolf. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's, so if you look at those patterns, like you can say like, you know, the, the same guy that always gets his heart broken is the same guy that's always going to get fired from jobs because how do you show up? What do you, where, where, what block is keeping you from showing up as your best self in relationships and in your job? Mm. So um, go, ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. You, you first. Um, so, um, you know, just a couple of things that kind of like the bells are ringing here as well. Like we're, I think we're kind of the same age. Maybe you're a little bit older than me, but I'm, I'm in my mid forties now. And, uh, you know, as someone who works with guys a lot, um, do you, do, you know, we, we spoke about isolation before. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
is that so, is that something that you see a lot of like you know guys feeling it's because when you're when you're younger you know there's always this kind of like tribalism you know you, you you're not married you don't have kids you know you can yeah. just go and party all weekend or hang out with your buddies and then as yeah. you get older you know like i've got three kids um you, you know you you tend to at least from from speaking with other guys this is what i've noticed is that um just responsibilities, you know, you don't have as much time, uh, et cetera. And so you tend to start feeling a bit more isolated in life and a bit more disconnected from other men. Um, mm-hmm. do, do you feel like, do you see that a lot in the work that you do? Yes, I do. And I see, um, you know, there is that time commitment and I do, I work with a lot of guys on, cause basically people will let their life run away with them. Like mm-hmm. they'll let the kids run away with them. They'll let their job run away with them where their calendar looks like a big ball of blue color there's no definition in any of it right so that's one thing to do the second thing is look at like are you is your if you can control your life and you're still isolating like you then then you're actually withdrawing like if if you're if you're withdrawing to protect yourself if you're withdrawing because you're insecure you know if you're withdrawing from if you're withdrawing your emotions from your wife because you feel like if you show her that you're scared of of quarantine or if you're scared of COVID or, I mean, that's just a relevant thing, but it it could be anything. Like if you show weakness, it's better to withdraw and just go inward than it is to be outwardly scared. Mm. And so that, that withdrawing now becomes a pattern. Now you're, now you're, now you isolate because it's safe and it's easy. It's easy. It's easy to sit in your basement and drink beer and play video games or whatever. Right. You don't have to, you don't have to show the world you're scared. You don't have to show your wife you're scared because you're, you're protecting yourself. But at the same time, you're, you're killing yourself. Yeah, right, because you're missing connection. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's the old uh, the old adage uh, where you know boys don't cry, right? So <laughs> yeah, you know, and I I find um, it's interesting, but I find that in many cultures, like that's a very old school way of thinking. You know what I mean? Like there's there's still I'm from South Africa, as you can hear. I'm not from not from here, but I find that when I was growing up, anyway. Um, a lot of the men were a lot more like affectionate to their children, affectionate to their spouses and whatnot. And so they kind of like, they weren't like overly emotional or anything like that, but they were a lot more open. Mm -hmm. And I found that when I came to North America, that was not the case at all. Like I found that guys were very much, you know, this is, we're guys, right? We we shake hands, we're dudes, you know, and that's kind of it. And then you don't like, you never ever let down that guard, but internally, you know, you have all these feelings and you, you feel a certain way, but you kind of like paint yourself into that corner again and you got no one to share that with, right? And so uh, what are you going to do, right? You either break it down and share it with someone or you turn to something else that's just going to cover it all up. Um, yeah, that's really interesting to hear you say that about like growing up for you, it wasn't like that because my experience is like what you came to with North America. Yeah. And um, I've heard a lot of different theories. On it. A lot of it, I'm, the one that I hear the most and it makes the most sense is that it comes from wartime, like World War II. Okay. You know, the guys, that's the, that was the survival mode, World War II. It was like, pull yourself up by bootstraps, be a man about it, throw some dirt on it. All that stuff actually served these men in wartime. But mm-hmm. they ended up raising sons like that. And, they ended up, and then those sons ended up raising other sons like that. And now we're finding out that like, that is not the most effective way to live. And yeah. so now there's this disconnect with like, well, I have all this programming that shows I can't ask for help and I can't cry and I can't be vulnerable because if I do, that means my, my wife is going to leave me or my, I'm going to get fired. And it's all yeah. these um, just really lies, really. Because what we found now is that the, 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 like with men's groups and the connection is the most important thing and the best way to get connected is to open up and be vulnerable and talk about like what's going on. Because yeah. 
yeah. really we're all feeling the same thing yeah you know and it's it's um it's good to actually talk like this uh you know i i used to um I used to live and work with the First Nations people here, right? With the mm-hmm. indigenous people in Canada. Yeah, yeah. So we would often have, like for many years, uh, I was with them. And so what we would often have is we would have um, men's circles. So mm-hmm. everyone would get together for like three days. It would be a Friday, Saturday, mm-hmm. Sunday. There'd be a sweat lodge on the Sunday kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But then what they would do is they would, we would have all the men and the women together for certain portions of it. Mm-hmm. And then we would split all the men and the women up for other portions of it. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting because for me as a young guy at that time, um, I was always like pretty open just, I think, because of the cultural difference. Right. But once I started realizing that other people weren't, you know, you sort of go, oh, shit, I'm a bit of a freak, right? So then <laughs> treat. And, uh, yeah, and yeah. what was cool was um, was being in those circles all of a sudden, you would just see these guys just crack open, you know, just crack open and they felt comfortable enough to do that. Mm-hmm. And the healing that came from that was was so profound for a lot of people because, you know, guys would just like crack open and let the demons out and there would be a whole bunch of other guys around them that were fully supportive where there was no judgment, you know, and, and Hey, guys share some pretty dark stuff with you and you just got to be like, you know, we we all have a past. And I think that, you know, looking to the future and acknowledging these things so that you can change them is really how you're going to change as, as an individual and then ripple out into the greater world, you know? Yeah, I mean that that's amazing that the the native, native or the indigenous yeah, stuff because yeah. I've done some work with those those groups too, and it's like they knew things long ago that we forgot, you know, yeah. we, or we just chose chose not to look at for some reason. But yeah, and that's the basis of what my my practice is is that like I want to provide space for these guys to heal. Like guys, men, you know, it's not everyone says toxic masculinity. Mm. It's more wounded masculinity than it is toxic. Yeah. Like the toxic, toxic is a symptom of the wound, you know, like the toxicity of it. So if we can heal the masculine, you know, we can avoid the toxic masculinity. But it really comes down to like, let's look at it as we're just wounded. And so but we don't have a place to heal. We don't have anywhere to go. We don't have anywhere to talk and crack open like you talked about. So, you know, yeah. a, a big thing for me is I want to provide the space in the room and, and hold that space for these guys to come in and, and crack open. Well, that's awesome, man. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great to hear that you're doing that kind of work because I really feel like it's so needed nowadays, mm-hmm. um, especially, you know, stress levels are at an all-time high. Um, people are panicked. People are confused about what's going on in the world. Um, yeah. You know, and, and for a lot of people, we're, we're feeling hopeless, you know, with, with where things are headed. And uh, as we said in the beginning of this podcast, you know, uh, for a lot of folks, they're going to turn right back to the bottle or turn back to the blow or turn back to whatever it is that... Uh, yeah that gets them through the day. Anger. And I feel like for us evolving as a, as a, as a global society, as human beings, um, I really feel like that's, that's obviously not the right way to go, but it's difficult, you know, cause we're being presented with all of these things and we're, we're being asked to face these things head on. And uh, it's, it's terrifying, you know, yeah. for, for a lot of people. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really great that you're doing that kind of work. Um, before we wrap up, I just want to check our time here today. Um, you've got, I going through your, you've got a program for guys. Um, I noticed that you got a few steps. Maybe you can just kind of walk us through those steps so people get an an idea of what, you know, if someone wanted to work with you or Mm -hmm. what does that process look like, uh, in terms of the four or five steps that you have outlined? Yeah. So, um, the, the that's the, the online program that I have is those those steps where we we kind of like I run I take you through a bunch of emails in the first thirty days and then it basically gives you the tools so you can and we'll spend time um, 
defining your current reality. And then we look at what we need to remove to go forward. And then we, we remove all that stuff and then move forward. Um, and then the last part of that is just accountability with uh, group calls every, once, every, every week for three months. Um, the VIP coaching that I do is one-on-one. We spend a lot of time together, like every couple of weeks, every week or two, depending on the situation. But it's really getting into like what is actually happening now. So the tendency for when you ask someone what's going on now, and they're like, they're like, well, I don't, I, I don't have this. I don't have this, which mm-hmm. is saying that like ideally I want this, and like I get that. Ideally, we, yeah, I see what you want ideally, but this is not doing anything to determine what is actually happening right now. Like why really like, why are we on the phone right now? Why, why are we talking right now? Define, like, give me the, only the facts about your life right now. Um, so that's like, I, you know, it could be any number of things. Fear, anger, anger is a big one. Ang- yeah, anger is huge. Yeah. Anger, anger is very rarely ever just anger. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's grief, it's fear, it's overwhelm, it's insecurities. It's a lot of things that manifest as anger. So define the current reality, like deeply define the current reality. And then from there, we look, I look back at, um, there's four stages of life. There's zero to seven, seven to 18, 18 to 30, 35, and then 18 to 33, and then 33 on. And so I take, I make them break down each one of those sections and pull, pull out like three big events, good or bad, that happened in those time frames. So like your memories of those. Cause, and, I, and I stop it at three to five because if you go past that, you start to make up stuff. You know, yeah. like, well, this kind of mattered, but I'm not sure if it even happened then. Like stop right there. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't matter because you can't remember it. Yeah. Like, let's only deal with like what is really affecting you. So then we, we look at the, so if you, once you get all that data, you can see patterns. There's, the patterns are there about relationships, about careers, about self, about anger, about your insecurities, all of it's there. And then we spend a little bit of time just, you know, everyone thinks it's like this massive undertaking to remove these, these problems, these traumas. And it is, it takes daily discipline and it takes some work, but really, you know, just acknowledging it and talking about it is like a 75% step in the right direction. Yeah. You know, after that, it's really about like, oh, I see, I see that pattern happening now. I'm going to interrupt that pattern and not do that again because I'm not going to repeat that pattern because it was painful. Man, like that, that, I, think, I think that you just raise a couple of points there. And the, the first one is pattern interrupt. You know, like yeah. that, that is just so huge because when you're in your daily cycle, you're the, it's the day-to-day, it's the same, the same, the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then, of course, once you rope in like addiction and whatever else you're doing, that's also part of the pattern, right? It's just every day. And so in interrupting that pattern is th- that first of all freaks you out because you're like, Oh my God, like, I'm, like there's this void all of a sudden that I'm not doing anymore yeah. in my pattern and okay, well the pattern's now changed. So where, where do you go from there? Um, but the other thing, um, you know, you bring up things like anger as well, which I think is just so huge, not just for, for men, for everyone, but um, it's good for people to know that anger is really a, um, p- people get angry when there's nothing left. <laughs> right like like that that's it right so it's like yeah. i get like frustration frustration means you've tried things and they're not working so then there's nothing else left to do except get pissed off right like that that's right. all that's left over um and then you just keep hitting your head against the wall thinking yeah. that it's going to change and it's not you know so you just get more and more angry um yeah, yeah you, you get i mean anger like another another manifestation of anger is that like i don't want to feel this so i'm going to get angry about it you know yeah. that's when you end up lashing out at your wife for no reason or, or you know, kicking your dog or lashing yeah. out. Like just like unsolicited, I call them unforced errors. Like for mm-hmm. no reason at all, creating, creating a dropping a grenade into your life. It's, and this, this goes back to these patterns that we talk about mm. as painful as they may be. And as like 
destructive as they may be for a lot of people, that is the comfort zone because they know how to handle that. They know how to respond to that. They know, you know what, like it feels good to get angry. It feels good to isolate. And so this it's, but they see that it's like ruining their marriage, but you know what? It's, it's comfy here. Like I like, it's also, it's, it's also, there's no, there's no outlet. Right. You you know, so, so it's like, if everything's bottled up inside, it's got to come out somehow. So is it going to be a positive um, expression or is it going to be a destructive expression? And if it's, if you've got no positive outlet or no, like, you know, roadmap kind of thing, then, then there's, where's it going to go? Right. It's only got a negative way to come out. And whatever that negative way is for you, whether it's, you know, substance abuse, addiction, anger, violence, whatever the case, um, that's how it's going to come out. Um, So breaking the pattern and then kind of putting one foot in front of the other, just, uh, you know, every, every day. um, I always, here's another analogy that I think people will find useful. Um, You know, if you, if you're in the forest and you're walking through the forest, right, the path is very clear. So if you've been walking that path for 20 years, you know, you can close your eyes and walk the path. But when you're trying to make a new path, you got to break out the machete. Okay, you got to break out the machete. You got to hack down a couple of trees. Mm-hmm. And at first, the path doesn't seem very clear. But once you walk that path, the other, the other, the, the tree, the old path will grow over eventually, and you won't even remember that it's there. And yeah, so, um, that's such a, that's, I, I think that's it's so a useful simple. analogy for people because I actually share those types of analogies with people on all kinds of other things, um, yeah. you know, whether it's self-sabotaging behavior, whether it's mm-hmm. eating disorders, whether it's, you know, it, so many people are motivated by fear. You know, we're not motivated by reward. Yeah, and and I think that when you can motivate yourself with reward, um, yeah. it's so much more empowering because you don't feel like you're, what's the word? You don't feel like you're denying yourself. Yeah. You know, it's like people go to the gym and they're like, well, man, I put on 15 pounds. I should probably go to the gym. So they go to the gym and then they lose the 15 pounds. And they're like, well, I don't need to go to the gym anymore. So yeah. I lost the 15 pounds, right? And you just kind of like bounce back and forth, back and forth. And I feel like with addiction, particularly, that, that, that's like such a running theme um, is just that, that back and forth. And you experienced that yourself, you know, for years. Yeah. Stop, start, um, stop, start, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the thing you talk about the, the punitive versus the reward based stuff, like, you know, what it really comes down to is like when you, when you're that new path in the woods, like it takes discipline to keep chopping away at those trees. Right. But everyone sees discipline as punitive. Like I'm, you said, I'm going to be, the joy is going to be taken away from me. Discipline is nothing more than self-love. All discipline is at its base level is a form of self-love. If you can shift that perspective from like discipline is punitive, but self-love is reward-based because if you really, if you make a decision to not, like you said, like talking about losing weight, if you, if you're losing weight and you want to eat a piece of cake, but you know, it's going to mess you up. Like if you make that, if you, if you can say like, Oh, I'm disciplined and I'm, I'm withholding joy from myself. That's one, that's not sustainable. But if you say, you know what, I'm, I'm choosing not to eat that cake because I love myself. That's reward. That feels good. Yeah. That's, that's sustainable. And then when you talk about, um, you know, always what was it you said about always falling back with the addiction over like yeah yeah you just kind of like stop start right so so you 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 feel good for a while and then you kind yeah, of go yeah. back onto it and then you feel you feel shitty and so then you go back so, to the other way yeah. and you just kind of flip-flop the whole time the, the worst thing that can ever happen is i feel good enough because like when you're in that pain of addiction or that pain of depression or that really bad anxiety like that's really awful and so what happens is like just a little bit of progress just one step out of the woods is going to feel really good. And you're going to be like, okay, I can stop. But really what you need to do is you need to take 10 more steps to get to really clear yourself of that pain. Because if you only, if you only get just enough to get out of the pain, the pain's too close. It's going to pull you back in. 
Yeah. You have to do the work to solidify your progress and to build up defenses against that pain to fall back into it. Right on. Well, Sam, I think it's a great note uh, to wrap things up. Um, you know, I'm sure we could chat for another hour or two. <laughs> Probably. Uh, but uh, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Uh, it's, it's really good. You know, this is, uh, I think, a great episode to open up with for season four. Um, I've personally like, just took a huge step back from everything for the last three months or so. I have a newborn mm -hmm. baby. So I just oh, said, congratulations. Hey, no podcasting, no whatever. I took a break from social media. I've just like dropped yeah. everything and uh, really been focusing on, on, on my own clinical practice, on myself, on helping other practitioners. So, um, and yeah, you know, in sitting and kind of contemplating all of this stuff that's going on in the world, um, you know, as I said in the beginning of the show, one of the themes that I really want to emphasize um, for this season on the show and probably moving forward is resiliency, is encouraging people uh, to evolve and to improve uh, as, as, a, as a person, as an individual, right? Because I do feel like if we can attain a higher level of consciousness as an individual, um, and we all do that, well, now the vibration of the whole planet is going up, mm. right? We're all evolving consciously as human beings. And it all starts with you, you know, as the individual. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so thanks so much, Sam. Where can we find uh, your, your work, your websites? Um, I'll obviously throw that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. Congratulations on your new, on your new baby. That's awesome. Thanks. Um, yeah. The one thing like you talked about there, I just have one thing to add real quick. Yeah, it's, please. Just have compassion, compassion mm -hmm. for yourself and compassion for others. That's the most sustainable approach. Um, don't beat yourself up when, when you don't do what you think you're supposed to do. Cause that's, that's not a real thing either. So just, yeah. you know, I tell everybody like, you just got to have compassion for yourself. We're all, this is all new for all of us. We're all learning. Mm -hmm. Even without quarantine, we're all learning anyways. Yeah. Yeah. All new every day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Sam Gibbs Morris. At, I'm sorry, at Sam Gibbs Morris. That's with two B's on LinkedIn. My name at Sam, or it's just Sam Morris. Uh, a picture of me with a cowboy hat on. And then my new website, which launches next week, is samgibbsmorris.com. Okay, awesome. And uh, I'm going to throw that in the show notes for everyone so um, they can click directly to those and uh, connect with you. Um, yeah, so keep on doing the work that you're doing. Um, you know, I think men's health, mental health, all of that stuff is is becoming a very prominent um, issue, uh, not even just men's mental health, I mean, just, just mental health in general. Yeah. Uh, but I think that um, it's great if, you know, you're pulling guys together and getting them around the campfire and, uh, you know, getting them to chat about their problems man-to-man, um, -man, which I think is, is important. So keep up the good work. And uh, thanks for stopping by on the show today. Thanks, man. You keep it up too. And great to be here.